Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, our monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta from Colombo, as well as Aimon from Karachi and Sana from New Delhi. Hi guys. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. So our main story this week is going to be on Afghanistan after one year of Taliban rule. We'll also be talking about recent arrests or attempted arrests under anti-terrorism laws, flooding in Pakistan and Bangladesh, and developments in the Bilkis-Pano case, as well as import bans in Bhutan and Sri Lanka. Let's begin with the situation in Afghanistan. कहानी काबुल की जी हाँ उस काबुल की जहां पिछले 20 साल से अमेरिकी फौज की मदद से एक ही सरकार चल रही थी आज वही काबुल तालिबान की वापसी का गवाह बना है अमरीका अफगानिस्तान में मकासद हासिल नहीं कर सका अमरीका के साथ अच्छे ताल्लुक चाहते हैं marked one year since the departure of the last foreign forces from Afghanistan and the Taliban entered Kabul and took control of the country, forcing hundreds and thousands of people to flee Afghanistan. And over this past year, we have seen increasing human rights violations against women. And despite their initial promises that women would be allowed to exercise their rights, the Taliban has systematically excluded women from work, education, and political participation. Since the takeover, public protests have also become more dangerous. Dozens of women have been arrested and tortured for holding peaceful protests demanding their rights. wasn't there a rally that was held recently? Yes, um, holding the first public demonstration in many months on the 13th of August, around 40 women gathered to march through Kabul near the education ministry. Um, the women were chanting bread, work, freedom, August 15th is a black day, and no to enslavement. And these protesters were beaten and detained by Taliban security forces who fired in the air to stop the protests. And they also grabbed the phones and cameras of Afghan journalists and international correspondents. Several reporters who were trying to cover the march were also detained. Yeah, and when I was reading about that, I was kind of remembering how just a year ago, we interviewed the executive director of the Afghan Women Network, Mary Akrami, shortly after she fled Kabul. And she described a really harrowing journey where she had to flee her office without taking even a notebook. Um, she was talking about sleeping for two nights inside the airport amidst really heavy firing before, you know, boarding a flight. Um, she also spoke about how difficult a decision it was to leave despite being under threat as a women's rights activist, knowing that not everybody could make this choice. Uh, and indeed, many people did decide to stay back as well. It's notable too that US involvement in Afghanistan was also often intertwined with discussions and rhetoric on 
preserving women's rights as kind of a justification for their involvement. And this in turn was then tied to aid. And the hasty exit of the US military from Afghanistan has kind of revealed the brittleness of this rhetoric, at least in terms of, you know, their involvement. And it did plunge the country into crisis when the Taliban took over Kabul. Yes, Raisa. The Taliban takeover has also led to an economic isolation, which includes bans and sanctions, which have pushed the country to complete economic collapse, resulting in unprecedented poverty and hunger. So it has become a humanitarian crisis as well. Uh, Since the takeover, the number of people needing humanitarian assistance in Afghanistan has uh, risen by 33%. And these conditions have worsened due to drought and rising food prices, with nearly 20 million people facing acute food insecurity as of May 2022. That is half of the population suffering from either level 3 crisis or level 4 emergency levels of food insecurity under the assessment system of the World Food Programme. Over 1 million children under 5 are suffering from acute malnutrition. Now, at the root of this crisis are the sanctions from countries like the US, which prevent aid from reaching the needy. There's also a nationwide shortage of banknotes, where people cannot pay for daily expenses, and also businesses are unable to pay their salaries. Uh, That's right, Marlon. So, uh, Afghanistan's central bank was cut off from the international banking system as part of the sanctions by the US and other governments. And this restricted Afghan's interaction with international financial institutions like World Bank, IMF, uh, Asian Development Bank and others. And so, before the Taliban took over, before August 2021, international aid accounted for 75% of the Afghan government spending, according to the World Bank data. And this completely stopped after the US exit. So even private banks are struggling to cover withdrawals from other humanitarian aid organizations because A, due to lack of cash, funds cannot be withdrawn. And B, even foreign banks in other countries are being cautious because they feel that by interacting with Taliban and and Afghanistan, they might be violating uh, UN and US sanctions on Taliban. So the current sanctions have led to a massive uh, liquidity crisis in the country. And uh, according to uh, uh, WFP data released in July, almost all Afghan households have reported no income or significantly reduced income since August 2021. And uh, according to Reuters, Taliban authorities have reportedly prepared to accept independent monitoring of the central bank by outside auditors, which was sort of like a key demand of the US government and the World Bank. Thanks, Sana. On the security front, the situation in present-day Afghanistan can best be described as an uneasy calm. While the Taliban silenced the initial resistance against them, they faced two insurgencies, one led by the Islamic State's local branch, and the second is the National Resistance Front. These are groups aligned with the former government. It is the former that is ma- that, that is a major cause for concern. The situation is not eased by U.S. In continued involvement as demonstrated by the 31st July strike that killed Al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri in Kabul. For the sake of the safety of the country, it is imperative that foreign powers do not revert to their proxy war tactics. This is not to say that the Afghan people are devoid of agency. Hundreds of Afghans participated in a protest on 5th August against the American infringement of its sovereign borders. 
However, any such civil demonstration against the Taliban government or its policies has become increasingly difficult to organize due to the Taliban's monitoring of protesting groups and state abductions frequently carried out against them. Yeah, adding to that, Ayman, uh, the Afghan media continues to face overwhelming challenges under the brutal regime of the Taliban. The Afghanistan Federation of Journalists and Media states that over 200 media outlets have ceased operations and um, 7,000 media workers, especially women, have lost their jobs in the past year. Um, Many media houses were forced to shut down due to the economic collapse as well, but also threats and reporting restrictions that were imposed by the Taliban. Now moving on to our next segment around South Asia in five minutes. Again, on 22nd August, the Islamabad High Court initiated contempt proceedings against former Prime Minister and PTI Chairman Imran Khan for passing what the court viewed as controversial remarks at a political rally against female sessions court judge Zeba Chaudhary. Chaudhary approved a two-day remand for PTI member Shehbaz Gill. The decision was taken by acting Islamabad High Court Chief Justice Amir Farooq after Khan was booked under Section 7 of the Anti-Terrorism Act for threatening the judge and the police officers involved in Gill's arrest. However, the court has granted Khan pre-arrest protective bail. Khan was scheduled to appear in court to respond to the allegations on 31st August and has offered to take back his words to sort out the matter. Whatever the outcome of this situation might be, it should be kept in mind that such state benevolence in the face of terrorism charges is rarely afforded to the common man. Um, now, in Sri Lanka, the government led by President Ranil Vikramasinghe is engaging in what is being dubbed as a witch hunt against the main faces of the, of the Sri Lanka protests. Now, uh, from Vikramasinghe's appointment to August 31st, there have been 133 protesters who were arrested, uh, three who have been abducted, and over a dozen uh, travel bans have been imposed on protesters. Um, Vasanta Modalige, the convener of the University Student Unions, along with uh, Hashan Gunatilaka and uh, Galvava Sirida Matera, were arrested and detained under the draconian legislation of Prevention of Terrorism Act. Uh, while there was widespread condemnation of this move uh, by human rights organizations and activists, uh, this sets a very dangerous precedent and creates a climate of fear and intimidation for those who are uh, merely exercising their fundamental right to protest. Uh, So in India, on 15th August, the the Gujarat government announced uh, its decision to free 11 convicts who were sentenced to life imprisonment on charges of murder and gang rape in the 2002 Bilkis Bano case. Uh, Bilkis Bano was gang raped and 14 people were killed, including her three-year-old daughter, uh, by a Hindu mob during the 2002 Gujarat riots. Uh, the convicts were released under the state government's remission policy and uh, it is also important to note that the committee that took this decision had five Bharatiya Janata Party members on it, uh, one of whom later said that the convicts had good values and because they were they are Brahmins. Uh, there was a huge backlash by activists and opposition parties on the decision and on 23 August, the Supreme Court of India agreed to hear the petition challenging the remission granted to the 11 convicts. Pakistan currently faces large-scale devastation due to what the Secretary of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, has turned monsoon on steroids. 
Abid Qayyum Suleri, the executive director of the Sustainable Development Policy Institute and a member of Pakistan's Climate Change Council claims that Pakistan has received more rainfall this year than any other in at least the past 3 decades. Around 1100 people have died as a result. At least 33 million people, which is 15% of the country's total population, has been displaced and thousands of acres of cropland has been destroyed. The flood has also destroyed a large portion of the country's infrastructure. while food prices have skyrocketed due to a supply shortage meteorologists have warned of more rain in the coming weeks several scientists believe that the floods are a result of climate change pakistan has been experiencing frequent extreme weather patterns this year the country also experienced the highest temperatures ever recorded in the province of sindh while the role of the pakistani state cannot be denied in aggravating this crisis via their development policies pakistan produces less than 1% of the current global carbon emissions however remains among the top 5 countries most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and meanwhile in bangladesh the death toll from this season's floods beginning in may rose to 141 as of 22nd august and one ground report from bangladesh noted that while the floods have decreased in the last few weeks conditions of the people in flood affected districts continue to worsen and a large number of people in silet and the northeast are still struggling with unemployment displacement loss of farmland and rising debt and to find out more on this um do check out a recent video story on flood management in bangladesh meanwhile in bhutan they are currently banning the import of all vehicles except specific utility vehicles earth moving machinery and agricultural machinery in order to save dwindling foreign exchange reserves um so in bhutan foreign exchange reserves have declined to 970 million us dollars by december 2021 and it's important to note here that bhutan actually is mandated by its constitution to maintain reserves to cover about 12 months of imports which perhaps explains why you know their reserves have declined to 970 million dollars but that's certainly better than the situation in sri lanka but in any case the ban is expected to be imposed for 6 months initially and quencel has reported that it was imposed due to more than 8000 vehicles being imported for the year up until june and this was apparently one of the major contributing factors to the depleting reserves over in sri lanka there has been an import ban announced on a total of over 300 items including chocolates perfumes and shampoo but also on warships industrial machinery and nuclear reactors which caused some commentary on twitter um and while some of these items on the list were met with some laughter and despite some caveats because most of the items on this list can still be imported for re-export and there are caveats um given that you know on approval from customs there are still some exceptions that can be made um this ban is still going to probably impact small and medium enterprises and potentially even the banking sector um unlike in bhutan this uh, signals sri lanka's continued shortage of foreign currency and is probably a move to appease imf um, officials some of whom are in colombo to continue talks and in fact uh, they just announced today that uh they have reached a staff level agreement which is surprisingly fast however there are even some caveats with that um in the sense that sri lanka still has to negotiate with creditors in order to 
kind of received the first tranche of aid. So, you know, these um, bans are likely to continue uh, and shortages for a while more. So in another story from Bangladesh, uh, the Dhaka visit of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights uh, in mid-August made some news in Bangladesh. Uh, this was also one of Michelle Bachelet's final official visits since her tenure ended this week on 31st August. Now, over the past few years, the Bangladesh government has come under serious criticism for its human rights records, uh, particularly violations regarding clampdown on free speech, um, as well as systematic use of uh, extrajudicial killing uh, by the state security forces. Um, so many in the country were curious how the visit would turn out and uh, if Bachelet would be critical or not in her assessment, um, especially in light of her, uh, her criticism for being somewhat uh, reserved on China's human rights record. Um, although it seems a report accusing China of serious violations has also just come out uh, only hours before her exit. Uh, but in Bangladesh, what many also wondered was if the visit would be carefully used by the Sheikh Hasina government as a PR exercise and to whitewash their uh, their own human rights record. Um, one leaked government memo on this regard indicated that the government accepted the proposal for the visit because it assumed it would be able to quote-unquote manage the visit, which could quote strengthen Bangladesh's standing in the multilateral system and was also likely to appease um, some of its bilateral partners. In fact, the government even organized a meeting between her and what they called eminent citizens um, composed of some pro-government members of the um, civil society. Um, however, the PR efforts appear to have been only partly successful. Um, in her statement at the end of the visit, uh, Bachelet called for an impartial, independent and transparent investigation um, into allegations of enforced disappearances, extrajudicial killings and torture. Um, she also brought up the narrowing of civic space, increased surveillance and intimidation against individuals and organizations. So not everything went according to Bangladesh government's desires, um, but at the same time, it's also unclear how, um, you know, how far these calls for reforms will go, especially under the current dispensation. And now it's time for our next segment, Bookmark. So India and Pakistan recently observed 75 years of partition and I thought uh, it would be a good time to revisit the 1974 classic Gagam Hawa or Scotch and Wind uh, directed by Ms. Satyu and adapted by Kefi Azmi and Shama Zedi from an uh, unpublished story by Ismat Chittai. You are wasting your time in this country. So the film is set in post-partition India and shows the struggle of a Muslim family who decides to stay in India after partition. Uh, the protagonist Salim Mirza is a respected businessman and after partition many of his relatives start to move to Karachi, Pakistan. He doesn't want to because he hopes that the situation will gradually calm down. But as the film progresses, uh, Salim starts to face discrimination because of his Muslim identity. Uh, he starts to feel unwanted in his own country. Uh, there is a dialogue in the start of the film. Badi gagam hawa hai, jo ukhda nahi sukh jabega. 
which roughly translates to the wind is scorching hot and the one who doesn't get uprooted will dry out. And this sort of sets the premise of the film. कैसे हरे भरे दरख्त कट रहे हैं इस हवा में बड़ी गर्म हवा है मिया बड़ी गर्म जो उखड़ा नहीं सूख जावेगा मिया और फिर एक शायर ने कहा है ना मिया वफाओं के बदले जफा कर रिया है मैं क्या कर रिया हूं तू क्या कर रिया है And uh, like after watching this film after like a couple of years, I thought the film is still relevant because the situation of Muslims hasn't changed much. Uh, just like the protagonists in the film, Muslims still face discrimination based on their identity, where they find it difficult to rent a place to live or face discrimination at workplace, which obviously has become more overt, overt and aggressive with the current Hindu majoritarian government in power. Has anybody else seen the film? Yeah Sana I actually watched it um uh, I have to say that I actually hadn't watched it before and I quite enjoyed it in the sense that I think it really kind of explores a quieter more subtler form of violence during partition because it kind of looked um at how family relationships and romantic relationships were fractured due to partition and it sort of underscores the point that you were making on how the impact of partition continues even until today when i was watching it i also actually remind was reminded of uh, tang um, the winning film at film south asia yeah yeah because again i think uh, yeah i think that filmmaker again explored uh, again how uh, you know in this in that case it was a hockey team which was divided by partition so i think that's a kind of very interesting way to explore um you know the ongoing impact of it um i also like that it kind of at one point talked about like property loss and economic loss yeah uh, again a kind of quite a form of violence that often gets forgotten or glossed over so yeah i thought that was kind of interesting but given what you were saying sana about how partition continues i don't know how i felt about that ending um where they you know join the crowd because it felt yeah. a bit like a a very neat resolution where they're just joining the crowd and kind of standing up as like it just had like undertones of like patriotism which don't really bear out if you look at the current situation but i also feel that you know like in current times also uh, like a lot of muslims that i know uh, i mean obviously like we are very privileged and like whatever is going on in the country doesn't impact us that much like in our daily lives but that point i thought of said like it's like it's high time like you will have to fight for your rights you will have to join the protest and you will have to do that so like i took it that way like that was the point where like like in the whole film he sort of like stops his son to not join the protest or be part of it but towards the end he sort of like gives permission that go and join the protest Yeah and in that sense there were parts where I also couldn't help but relate it to what's happening in Sri Lanka as well like with all the discussion about you know joining protests not joining protests and what's going on now with the current government so I was definitely also thinking about Sri Lanka during it um even some of the things that they were doing to adapt was just reminding me of some of the things we're going through right now so yeah. I think it was a really relevant watching that sense just to uh, if i may add um just to go back to the question of relevance and and that ending as well and i mean i'd also not watched the film until now i'd heard a lot about it and 
kind of you know one one knew what the overall story was but yeah it was uh, i thought the ending was in a way like raisa you said a bit too neat but i think it was also um especially i mean in contrast to what indian society and and politics has become it was also and especially uh, you know i mean this was almost like a celebration of maybe an imperfect and idealized idea of like the secular india and where kind of they made a decision on the optimism that india would be is the place for you know for muslims as well and that um, to leave for pakistan would be to betray their dream and and so yeah it was i think i found it even more powerful precisely because it i mean it tells you know how far india has come you know in this kind of hindu nationalist direction but also that the very ideal is also something that you know is something that i guess drives a lot of people and and politics even today in terms of kind of resistance and and to kind of uh, fight hindutva so i thought i thought that was uh, yeah relevant on on so many layers uh, yeah it definitely does it's like food for thought for sure um but my my recommendation is going to be much less scholarly or perhaps it's scholarly i don't know um but i uh, was recently watching the new season of indian matchmaking i don't know if anybody here oh, had a no. chance to watch it <laughs> 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 like so far i've stopped myself from watching it like like there are a lot of articles on it i'm like no sana you're not going to watch it <laughs> but please tell me more Yeah so I thought I should make a scholarly contribution to the <laughs> to the current <laughs> discourse but um yeah for me I think maybe because everything that's happening here is somewhat stressful a lot of what I watch is also to try to escape from stress and uh, it might sound strange because in some ways it can this kind of genre can make uh, can make you feel angry <laughs> but i personally think uh, indian matchmaking kind of really um it just hits that um, what we call cringe content <laughs> where you watch it and you kind of cringe at how uh, unaware uh, the the protagonists are and i think because it's set squarely in upper class kind of bombay and it explores kind of the indian marriage industry uh arranged marriage industry i think it's safe to say that it really brings out that aspect of it there's something that you know it's just interesting to watch to escape from what's going on i'm back <laughs> in the past matchmaking was easy but it has become tough for me for some clients since years i'm working and still they are unmarried it's everything written in destiny I'm just a person who God has sent me to match you all. So yeah, I definitely um watched the second season kind of with that in mind and we kind of saw the return of some season 1 favorites including uh Aparna <laughs> who uh gained a lot of polarized reactions. Um I personally kind of like her because she's like a living meme and she has just a tiny bit of self awareness whilst at the same time being mostly unaware um yeah so for me i think the opening shot of indian matchmaking just sums up what's appealing about the series where aparna is going into this long monologue about needing spiritual um uh, 
you know, going meditating and needing yoga and how she's going through this spiritual This is season two or season one? This is, this is season two. Oh, right. So yeah, okay. it, it's like she's going on this deep, you know, this monologue and then it zooms out and she's making a smoothie bowl for herself. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that could be considered spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> I just find her so perfect because she just fits into that whole girl boss. Um, it's almost like a caricature, but then she looks right into the screen. Like she breaks the fourth wall and she says something with a glint in eye and you're like, hmm, maybe she knows what she's doing. Oh, oh, so she has some like really nice lines, I think. Um, in, I mean, I'm just, you know, I just, because I was curious, since you guys are talking about it, I just watched like a couple of episodes. Um, so yeah, Parna is a, is a very absurd things to say at very odd times and it just, it just takes other, you know, anyone who's like talking with her off guard and uh, so I, I like that whole theatricality <laughs> of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like in general, you know, there's so much wrong with this show, <laughs> but <laughs> like, you know, colorism, for example, right, you know, they just say, okay, I want like a like a fair, not too dark, you know, <laughs> you know, the, all these criterias that they kind of uh, come up with. It's just, yeah, anyway. Exactly. That is, that I kind of like that because it brings that aspect to the forefront and it definitely reminded me of the matrimonial ads in Sri Lankan newspapers as well. Like, everybody is fair. Everyone is looking for a fair bride. Yes, yeah, same, same in India. It really, like, mm. <laughs> it really brought that, brought that to the fore and like all the really unrealistic expectations that they had of their prospective spouses and like the heavy weight of expectation behind these dates okay i want to know like do they i want to know like do they like towards i haven't i haven't watched like any of the episodes of the indian matchmaking but like towards the end do they find <laughs> partners like that do or they like find how love? Does it end? <laughs> none of the matches from season one worked <laughs> oh really oh bad yeah <laughs> i should stop watching <laughs> actually i have a question for rise i i didn't finish the se- second season i just watched the first episode yeah. um so in season one i guess seema auntie she kind of has this like bias towards like men right she calls them good good boys or whatever and oh, yeah. the women mm. she's like they're difficult and stubborn and like does she still do that or has there been like some kind of character? Because there was a lot of backlash. Already? Yeah, so okay. I yeah, I definitely think that she's certainly um, received some of that backlash and heard it um, <laughs> because it was so memed. And it is true that, uh, you know, she kept the word that she used to use was compromise. She's like, girls have to compromise, you know, they can't be so... Um, they can't be so demanding and that is also why I liked Aparna because she was a little complicated in that despite her obliviousness she kind of pushed back on that and she's like you know what I am not going to apologize for wanting what I want and I want to you know I have my work and I also want this and like this is what I'm looking for so I kind of that is also why I liked Aparna um but in terms of Seema, I think, um, so she had changed her word. She no longer used compromise. I think that was her reaction to the criticism. She was like saying patience. She was like, people, you know, patience is key. Relationships, there needs to be patience. So she was kind of pushing the same kind of thing. Um, 
And well, the only other discernible change that I would see is that she had learned at least to get a little bit less frustrated when girls said that they didn't want a match. There would still be like this pushback, especially um, again, there's definitely an imbalance. Like when uh, boys said that they didn't feel a spark, um, I feel like she was less hard on them than she was with the girls. That was still there. Um, But I think she had somewhat learned a bit from the backlash and she was trying to kind of moderate, but not entirely successfully, in my opinion. Um, And there were also things that she glossed over too, like, uh, or she was a little bit, like, blunt on. I think the thing that struck out to me the most was um, there was a perspective, there was, like, a Sikh family uh, who was, like, looking for a match. And then she asked um, the father, you know, when did you migrate to the U.S.? And he just paused and said, I, I moved in 1983. And you could see that he was thinking... Like, should I say it? Should I talk about, like, you know, the the reason why I migrated? And then he decides not to because clearly he's like, maybe this isn't the kind of show where we talk about these things. And he just goes on. Um, And that scene I thought was so interesting because, yeah, there was this clash there between Seema and uh, this family, which was, like, never acknowledged. It was just over in a second. And it kind of just talks about how the show just glosses over a lot of realities, but also brings some things to the fore. So, yeah. Also, I have to give a shout out to there's a guy who's a chicken farmer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, everybody who knows me knows that I love fried chicken. And there was a particular sign, like, line where he says something like, you know, I have nothing can beat my love for fried chicken or something like that. And I'm, I most definitely screenshotted that and sent it to everybody I knew. <laughs> <laughs> this is like so one I, of the guys in the show. Yeah, he's a chicken farmer. All he right. basically goes on for like about 20 minutes about his love for chickens. And he All does right. it on dates as well. Great <laughs> <laughs> that the show gave him that much of space. <laughs> Again, I personally loved it because I love fried chicken. So I was like, this is just great meme content. So I just like screenshotted that and I have that. Um, screenshot with me still um, anyway that was my uh, recommendation for this month if you want to watch cringe content that is and on that note that's it for this edition of South Asia Sphere do head to our website himalmag.com to see more of Himal's work and while you're at it check out our membership plans and support us thanks everyone bye 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 bye, bye.